This is a pretty nerdy way to choose where to have dinner. I will be your host for today, Ryan Price, and we do have a very wonderful episode number one coming up for you with our special guest, Hilary Mason, who is the chief scientist at Bitly. And with me, as always, as we've now done exactly two of these, is my lovely co-host and awesome person who just walked in off the beach, Catherine Neal. Hello, everyone. And you'll remember Catherine if you did listen to episode zero. Um, hopefully we will make this a regular thing and Catherine and I will keep talking to interesting people about the intersection of creativity and technology and science and art and other cool stuff like that. Um, if I could come up with a tagline for, for a show like this, it would be, we want to find a place where inspiration, creation, and building interesting stuff We want to talk about those kinds of things. So hopefully um, you'll find this interesting. I believe that we've got just about mm, an hour's worth of show for you today. And at least a half an hour of it is with our special guest, who is Hillary Mason. She's in New York. um, And you'll hear her mention that pretty quickly. And then um, we talk about what what the, the nature of her work is, who she works with, and some projects that she's helped start. And then kind of later we get into like what she does in her free time. So hopefully you find that interesting. Um, anything else you want to throw in here, Catherine, before we just throw to the interview? Um, I don't think so. I think we should just jump in. Okay. Well, um, here it is. So we're now here with Hillary Mason who is the chief scientist at Bitly. Welcome to the podcast, Hillary. Thank you. As the chief scientist at Bitly, you are in charge of doing lots of cool things, uh, crunching data and exposing cool functionality and information to people, right? That's true. Um, My job is pretty much to take all the data flowing through Bitly and try to figure out uh, interesting things to do with it, which sometimes means finding cool stories in it and sometimes means uh, building infrastructure uh, that can feed into our products. Cool. Yeah, and we actually had you down here in Orlando for, well, you kind of like gave a a talk at Urban Rethink, which is our home. Um, I did. And one, one thing I definitely remember was you showed like, this was the most clicked-on picture of a cat. <laughs> yes. I won't tell you how many hours on our Hadoop cluster we spent to try and figure that out. But it's cool to be able to like wield some of that information and do fun things with it, right? Well, it is, and that one in particular is fun because cats are the metaphor for the silliness of the content that you know we share on the internet. Uh, and so using cats to represent that content becomes really useful when you're trying to explain why the kinds of work we do are relevant. Yeah. So, so in, you know, 15 years when they start making retro movies about the turn of the century, will there just be 
and when every time you see a cat picture, you'll just have this like ping of nostalgia, like when you see yeah, one the, of those giant cell phones. The internet will be a series of tubes, and they will all be filled with kittens. <laughs> if I if I can just ask you a little bit about your background, we don't have a whole whole lot of time today, but um, like, how do you get to New York? How do you get to Bitly? How did you get to doing data science? Doing you know, like writing lots of Python scripts all day long. Like, what's that? How do you get there? So that's a, a big question, but I'll try and give a concise answer. Um, I actually grew up in New York and moved away to go to college, but always wanted to move back. And I was pretty excited to discover when I did move back that there's a thriving community of entrepreneurs and technologists and hackers and makers who live in New York and have a lot of New York pride. Um, my background is in computer science. I've been programming since I was a little kid, and I've always loved it. Um, I studied academic computer science and algorithms and machine learning more specifically, and was actually a professor at a little school in Rhode Island before I realized that uh, it was a lot more fun to build things. And so I moved back to New York, uh, was working with one startup that failed miserably, and eventually found my way to Bitly. And I happened to have this love of uh, building algorithms and systems on data around the same time when those skills became very useful. And so over the last few years, I've been a member of a, we can call it a conspiracy, to sort of define what data science means mm. um, and to build it as a new professional practice. Well, that sounds really fun. Yeah, so- it's, been, uh, it's been really fascinating. Is that, is that a problem that you have when you say, I, I work with data, and people go, what do you mean by that? Or they just have a lot of preconceived notions? Well, I try not to bring it up at cocktail parties and such. Um, but beyond that, uh, what's changed is that um, like nothing we do with data is new in the world. We've all been doing it for quite a long time. The difference is that uh, we're combining sets of skills in one professional that we were never combining before. So the modern data scientist has to understand the math. Um, which means they typically will come from a scientific or mathematical background, though not always. Um, They have to be able to write code, which is where all those Python scripts come in. And if someone hands you a database in whatever messy form it's in, you have to be able to make sense of it. And the last piece is they have to really understand what's interesting about the data. And when I talk to executives, I usually say they have to be able to understand the business problems that you're trying to solve. And when I talk to artists, I say they have to be able to tell the really compelling creative stories. But it's the same skill. It's really that innate curiosity and creativity to be able to take some data and build a system that does something really interesting with it. Well, and that's definitely what we like to hear since we're talking about bringing art and technology together or bringing (laughs) art and science together or whatever you want to call it. Um, Catherine, you have anything to throw in here? No, I I totally agree. I mean, uh, you know, the, the science and art really aren't as divergent as people seem to want to believe they are. They're not mutually exclusive. And I know Hillary also has a background in um, creative writing and an interest in creative writing. And, um, you know, I, I think they're more similar than people believe because they really do require sort of a similar skill set. And it, it's based in creativity and, and curiosity more than anything. Wouldn't you agree, Hillary? Absolutely. 
Um, I'm generally frustrated by how many people seem to assume that engineering is not at all creative and that something like painting, which can be very mechanical, is by definition creative. Right. Yeah, and I have the same problem because I started out life as a neurobiologist and people would say, isn't that really, really dull and boring and stuff? And it's like, no, it really requires a lot of imagination and creativity to and, and you know it's sort of like being Sherlock Holmes in a lab test to figure out how things work yeah one one thing that I've been um, kind of like burning through in the last couple of days it's uh, a guy that I met actually on my recent trip to to upstate New York he was a speaker it, his name is John Gertner and he wrote this whole it's like a it's like an oral history almost of Bell Laboratories in the place where they invented, you know, the transistor and satellite communications and so many things that really have like shaped the modern world, but he t- constantly talks about the idea that you, they weren't just people like, you know, doing sciencey stuff. They were actually had had to create new things and um it's really really interesting book. It's called The Idea Factory, and I'm really hoping that we can talk to him one day. But one of the really interesting things he brings up was since all of their research had to somehow eventually, within a couple of years, try to help them improve the telephone system, um, that was a really interesting constraint so that anything that they were inventing, they were trying to solve this myriad of problems that came along with the phone system. So my question for you, Hillary, is since you're working to try to make, you know, links and shares and Twitter and these other sorts of social media things interesting, does does that, like, help you, like, have focus and, like you say, like, help you tell your story? <laughs> I think it's innately interesting. Um, and what we do is really pulling those stories out. They're already there. Um, but that said, I mean, I do work at a startup company and we do generate revenue. And so all of the work we do is prioritized in that context. So we're trying to find the things that are interesting in more than one way. And But but does do you find that like I mean, it's a, it's a fairly small company, right? It's it's less than, what, like 50 or 100 people? Uh, we're still less than 50 people, less yeah. Less than 50. Um, but, but your team is, is, like, about how much percentage of the company, like how many people are there? Uh, we're about 20%. Yeah, okay. Um, and do you have lots of people, like, breathing down your neck? Like, why haven't we created something new that makes us dollars today? <laughs> well, we have, and that's why we have the leeway to continue on. Um, Bitly is a really interesting company because it's a company that grew up around a data set rather than the other way around. Like most companies grow a business, and then the data grows around that business. Uh, and so we do have a little bit of luxury in that uh, we don't really know the answers to most of our questions, and we're still trying to figure them out. And we do have some new products coming out that are a direct result of work my team has done that will hopefully yield some amount of money. <laughs> but that that was not the primary motivator for doing the work. But would you say that the, the science part, the stuff that you work on, has always been part of the company? That's always been like one of the legs of the stool? Yeah. Uh, in fact, 
since we have three legs, so it might be a bit of a wobbly stool, um, one being our consumer site, the second being our enterprise and revenue-generating offerings, and the third being the work we do, which is expanding the potential capacity of those other two. So I think of what we do as sort of laying down the potential future for the rest of the company. Yeah, definitely. Um, Catherine, I know I know that you definitely know about working in a research environment and and managing people who are, you know, being forced to think outside the box or have no choice but to think outside the box. Um, what's I don't know. Thinking outside the box is such a cliche word, but I don't really know how else to like couch that in this exact moment. Um, but what what sorts of things were you curious about, Catherine, when you were first talking to Hillary, or or did you just see someone who, you know, you you saw having a similar experiences to you? Well, I mean, I enjoy meeting somebody who sort of has a similar background because you it's not all that common to run into somebody who, you know, has a res- has a research oriented background these days. You know, you run into a lot of people with business backgrounds, and you know, they're they're interested in figuring out how to make the next dollar off of whatever is happening. And and researchers and people who are into research oriented, you know, what's cool about this? How can we hack this? How can we make this? Is, you know, like identifying a fellow member of, of your own tribe. So that was really fun. And I liked hearing about the stuff that she was doing and the things that she was interested in and that, and that sort of thing when she came down to Orlando. And, you know, I loved her talk. Yeah, you know, finding other makers, hackers, whatever word you want, researchers, you know, is, is always fun. And to find out what they're doing, because it, it always sort of adds to the uh, intellectual gene pool, so to speak. And it always gives you ideas about what maybe you want to be working on or things that you can change in, in projects that you're doing. At least that's how I view it. No, I agree. There's certainly a lot of power gained from finding people who are like-minded and being able to just get inspired by whatever it is they're working on, which is why spaces like here in New York, NYC Resistor have been so important and Urban Rethink in Orlando. Um, not so much because they create businesses, but because they uh, expand people's minds by just showing them what other people think is possible. Totally agree. Do you find, um, Hillary, that you are seeking out other people that are doing similar work? Like, are they close at hand to you? I mean, hopefully being in a big city, you have got some of that, right? Right. So one of the brilliant things about being in a city like New York is that there are so many people that you can, like, if you just look at the cuisine, we've got, like, uh, Brazilian Chinese food or, um, you know, just around the corner from my office is Basta Pasta, which you can imagine as Tokyo's finest Italian restaurant. The chef is Japanese preparing Italian food. Um, And these things are only possible because the city is so big. And the same thing is true here with very specific technical interests. And so I used to live in Rhode Island where you could fit everyone doing anything interesting uh, with technology in one room. And in fact, we did. And that was itself pretty powerful. It was around 300 people meeting monthly. Um, But here in New York, we'll get 500 people showing up for a machine learning talk. Uh, There are just so many people here interested in every facet 
of tech and startups. That's pretty wonderful. And then a lot of the interesting stuff happening in the makerspace also started here, um, particularly things like the Open Hardware Summit, uh, which is a set of people really trying to codify uh, standards for creating open source hardware. Um, there's a conference that's run here every year on that topic. It, yeah, it's just a really creative uh, space, both in terms of the, the commercial enterprise, there are tons of startups here doing pretty interesting things, but then also in terms of the artistic area and how those things overlap and people float back and forth. Not always and not everyone, but there are definitely opportunities to meet people from both sides of the world. Yeah, I mean, definitely being in a, in a place that's such like a nexus, it's, it's a gateway to so many other places, but that's got to really help. about uh we, we have to shift gears because we're running out of time rapidly <laughs> uh it's about a program that you helped start called hack and why do you want to talk yeah. about that a little bit so the idea of hack and why was to connect young people um who really didn't see any opportunities other than to work in finance or consulting with the more creative uh startup community and it was all to do so in new york to strengthen the entire ecosystem now, Hack and Why is an engineer's solution to a, a imbalance in a human problem. And I can explain that a little bit in that there are all of these participants in the New York tech economy, and there are the venture capitalists who fund companies, the companies themselves that provide a really uh, great place to work creatively, uh, but don't have the money or manpower to recruit at the big universities and the job fairs, and then the students who uh, had no way to see that those opportunities even existed. And so Hack and Why was a solution where each party in that ecosystem got something they wanted uh, in a way that left everybody winning. Cool. So in the basic program is kind of like a summer internship almost, or like a fellowship where you would get to go and like experience firsthand, like working at a startup and and creating some of your own projects and stuff like that too, right? Yes, exactly. So the, there's a very prestigious summer fellowship where the fellows get to live in Union Square in Manhattan and they get a series of lectures that are uh, everything they need to know that they're not going to learn in school to work at startups. And they also get assigned a position at an awesome startup that's pre-vetted for them. Um, at the same time, there's also a program that happens during the school year that's open to everyone that's just designed to raise awareness, and that's a series of hackathons and other events um, that any current student can participate in. And so some of that requires you to be physically in New York, but for the summer program, you can come from anywhere in the world, right? Well, the idea is you can come from anywhere, but you're going to be in New York. And the, the summer program um, is what it is because all of the research I've seen basically says that to keep graduates in a city once they've gotten their degree, they either need to have a job or they need to have a significant other. Mm. And given that we're dealing with young engineers, we decided not to tackle the latter problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the former one was easily tractable. And you guys have gotten some really interesting backers for the program too, which I'm sure people can find out about on the, on the Hack NY website. Um, so like the Kauffman Foundation, I know, was one of your first ones. They also right. sponsor Startup Weekend. Um, and is there other things that would be, make people go, ooh, so impressive? <laughs> 
Um, I'd much rather people be impressed by the effects of the program. Like the students who were involved the first year, it's on its third year now, are still involved in the program, still mentoring. They've gone on to work at a variety of different companies or even start their own companies. I think that's the thing that's impressive. They've formed a really dense social cohort also, which is really good for the city and really good for them as they grow their careers. Sorry if you can hear the sirens here. We're in New York. <laughs> it's a normal thing. Yeah. So so that's definitely one possible solution every time I hear people complain. There's nobody who does X in this city. Then you say, well, you need to figure out a way to attract those people, right? Yes. Um, in the case of New York, it was really more a matter of uh, keeping them because they were here already. Mm-hmm. Uh, or making opportunities that were there but not available, uh, available and apparent. But it, it's amazing how much power there is in just saying that something should be a certain way and planting a flag, like saying that this is a real thing and we're going to work on this now, uh, just to get people's imaginations engaged and to find support. A lot of times just giving something a name and saying this is this is a thing, like you say, planting the flag that can be definitely really powerful for community building. Um, That's what I've learned. Yeah. And do you have any other questions about this, Catherine? Because I want to switch gears to something a little more fun. Uh, No, I'm just thinking that, you know, in our planning of how we want to do this in Orlando, that that's maybe what we ought to do, Mm -hmm. plant more flags. (laughs) (laughs) The word I like to use for that a lot is the lightning rod. Because I I definitely am involved with a lot of this community stuff. And sometimes I see people, they come up to like Urban Rethink and like, oh, did you run this place? Did you create it? And I go, no, 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 no. But they don't really know any other way because I'm the end point. I'm the the first, you know, way of interacting with it. And so there, there are definitely benefits to having certain people or things or places be those lightning rods to get people interested in something. I agree. So the, the, the next thing I want to ask you about for sure is things that you do when you're not at Bitly. So I know, for example, I think this was in a an article somebody wrote about you. It might have even been the one where you were on the, you got you that picture with your blonde hair. What the heck was that called? <laughs> that was in Glamour magazine. Glamour. I don't know. One of, one of the things that I was reading that mentions you was talking about how you built an app to analyze where all of the hamburgers were in your neighborhood. Oh, right. Yes, Which, I did that. <laughs> where, where is that reference? And I'll make sure that I put a link to it in our show notes. Um, I think that was in a profile in Business Week. Business um, Week. Yeah, that was uh, a really fun little side project where I was, I live in the West Village in New York, and I was wandering around, and this restaurant opened, and, you know, I, I judged it poorly just from the menu because it looked so much like the median West Village restaurant. It was trying a little too hard. And uh, and that made me really think, you know, I don't, what is the median West Village restaurant? And then, uh, you know, my neighborhood in New York, the cuisine here is so rich. Like, can you define the Thai food hotspot? Which it turns out, by the way, is in Hell's Kitchen. Mm. Um, so I grabbed all these menus uh, off the internet and then figured out there are something like 173 non-fast food hamburgers you can order in the West Village and plotted the price distribution. Uh, and then the East Village has 
a couple hundred more, you know, somewhere around 360, but the prices are lower. This is a pretty nerdy way to choose where to have dinner. Well, and was it, it wasn't just based on, on price, but also like ingredients and, and like variety as well? Yeah, so you can figure out, you know, how many avocado burgers you can order. And if you grab the data in time, you'd be able to see the emergence of trends, which I think would be really interesting. So how often do you think you'd have to, to sample that, like every three months or every six months, something like that? Well, given the rate of restaurant turnover in New York, I think every one month would be <laughs> ideal. Um, but other places, probably three to six months okay. would work. Yeah. If somebody did want to, you know, take take apart a problem like that, First of all, I guess the question is, is that, is that code on GitHub anywhere? Um, it's not, and neither is the data, because I don't own it legally. I had to borrow it from places that do own it legally um, and don't have APIs or make that data available. Uh, but it wasn't very hard to write something to go along and scrape that into a format that was useful. Okay. But if, if somebody did want to end up solving a problem like that, do you have, like, I don't know, a place you could send them? Like, you know, if, if you want to get started with analyzing, you know, interesting information like that, what, how, I mean, I'm sure that at this point you don't really think about how you learned that, but do you have a pointer? Yeah, um, the pointers are just to pick something you're interested in, figure out what data exists in the world, and then from that figure out what subset you can get your hands on uh, to play with. And then start to think about the questions that that data lets you ask and get reasonable answers to. And I say this all the time, but um, the job of the data scientist is really to ask the right questions. And it turns out the answers are generally very simple or extremely difficult. It's the question that's the important thing. Um, and then it, it helps to write a blog post or to share it somehow back with the community because you'll find that uh, other people will have other questions that you never thought about and that'll give you a direction to explore. And then when you're finished, you should publish it in some sort of easy to read format and not just make a silly infographic. <laughs> yes, I'm not a fan of a lot of the infographics that we're seeing pop up. It's interesting because you talk about you know storytelling and some people would argue that an infographic is a really easy way to tell a story. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's very accessible, right, for, for a mass of people. But for people like us, we see that or we see the, a PDF document and we just kind of like grind our teeth, right? <laughs> well, right. So the job of data visualization is to take something really complicated and nuanced and something you can't represent in an obvious visual metaphor. Maybe there are too many dimensions or um, there's no clear way to do it and to render it clearly in a, a very simple visual way. And so the infographic format has its place, um, but is often misused. Yeah. So so do you have other things that are like that, that hamburger analysis example that you want to tell people about? I mean, what, or, or do you have something that you've been doing with open hardware? Because I know you mentioned that. Um, no, that's more one that I'm a huge fan of, but haven't really contributed to directly. I've just been able to watch the evolution of that community as it's grown and some of the work that's coming out of it, which I think uh, of all the things happening now, that one's poised to have a bigger impact than many. Well, and, and like you say, the, the East Coast is definitely a very hot place for the hardware, if I'm right. 
Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff here. MakerBot is another company that grew out of NYC Resistor in the Brooklyn community. Adafruit is here, um, Little Bits. You know, there's a lot of good stuff happening in New York in that area. Yeah, Little Bits really cool. I mean, I was noticing they got on CNN the other day. So that's oh, really? That's awesome. Definitely, I think part of their mission is to, you know, try and make these electronics really widely known and accessible. So definitely really good for them. That's so cool. So any uh, last questions before we have to wrap this up? I will throw to Catherine first. Uh, not that I can think of. I wish you'd been here for the demonstration of uh, Raspberry Pi the other day, but other than that... Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, some people from our local hackerspace, um, we've been trying to pull them down to Urban Rethink because the part of town they're in, it's it's just a little bit out of, uh, out of the way. They have a really great space, like this big 10,000 square foot space, but... I think just wow. a lot of people didn't really know about it. And then they threw a maker fair, um, what, about two months ago. And then we've been doing some little hardware stuff here, like making music with electronics and stuff like that. And then, so we're just trying to help spread the word and get people thinking, I guess. Trying to cross-pollinate. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and, and somebody was making this mention that these like little kids were doing way more interesting stuff with the hardware than most people. <laughs> awesome. So, so Hillary, there is the one last thing that I want to ask you, which is, is there somebody you think or some subject you think that we need to dig deeper on or someone that you think we should have on the show? And especially if you have their email address and you can give them a gentle poke, maybe you can <laughs> say, you should totally have my friend Joe on because he knows all about this subject. Well, in terms of data visualization, you should definitely talk to Jared Thorpe. Um, his Twitter handle is Blueprint, B-L-P-R-N-T. Um, and he is the data artist in residence at the New York Times and does a brilliant job of uh, bridging art and visualization for a purpose and uh, journalism. Well, I think, I think that qualifies as an answer. <laughs> Yeah, another person you might want to talk to is Jake Porway, who has a nonprofit called DataKind, which is trying to find ways to use data to do good in the world. Uh, and he's also super awesome. Well, that sounds great. Um, and I definitely want to make sure that people know how to find out more about you if they're interested. You are at HillaryMason.com, which is spelled with one L. Right, H-I-L-A-R-Y Mason.com. And uh, that's in, my website. In many places, you go by H. Mason, right? Yes, the nice and generic username. And, and we can also read some of your blog posts on the Bitly blog sometimes, right? Yes, so my team posts something to the blog every few weeks. Our last post was a pretty fun uh, exploration of the recipes being shared around the United States for July 4th. I think the top one in Florida was actually alligator ribs. <laughs> That's, that's, that's Florida. Right. Yeah. yeah, so you should check that out. Very cool. Well, um, if you have anything else to add, this would be the time to do it because you are turning into a pumpkin. <laughs> no, I think that's it. Thank you so much for chatting. Oh, thanks, Catherine, for doing this. And uh, I'm glad that we were able to squeeze it in before your other meeting. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Startups are pretty crazy. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Taylor. Great. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
So this this data visualization stuff, do you get into it at all? Yeah, somewhat. I mean, I like she said, everything is about the data and telling a story with it, whether that story is done with an equation or with words or, or whatever. Um, and I agree that the, the cute little infogra infographics is, while a lot of people like them, is, is sort of a little like comparing a comic book to Ulysses, you know? Right. <laughs> Not that I have anything against comic books. I like comic books. But, um, yeah, there's, there's better ways in, to use them, I think. Yeah, I actually think about some interesting visualizations I've seen that have like a physical manifestation, like someone will use an Arduino or something, and they will take some available data, like, you know, the whether or the stock market is up or down right now, and therefore they show like a green light or a red light. And I think this is just an installation in an art museum. And, and it's just that sort of like instantaneous, you can look over and be like, should I be happy or sad right now? Yeah. No, I think that I think stuff like that's really great. As a matter of fact, what um, I used to do with my clients who weren't very tech savvy and, and weren't very happy when you gave them lots of numbers because they didn't really understand what they meant is I used to build dashboards for them mm -hmm. on their projects and you know, we would keep the data up up to date with the dashboard so they could just like look at them every morning and we would have like green lines and red lines and yellow lines that they could just look at and it was like a bar graph sort of thing or a pie pie graph or something and they would be able to tell by looking at it, you know, what sections of the projects were on schedule and what was falling behind and what was on hold because it was dependent on other stuff. And if people respond to stuff that they can really wrap their head around and for engineers or scientists and stuff, you can you can pretty well bombard them with lots of numbers and they can bring the story out of it. But for people who are business people or whose, whose mindset is different, that's not going to mean anything to them. They can't see the you know forest for the trees. So you have to find a way to to get the information across. You know, tell a good story right. or paint a really good picture. For some people, it's, you know, giving them a graph that boils it all down to them or, you know, a three-dimensional representation or whatever that works for them. Catherine, have we talked about the Lean Startup? I think we talked about the book. I don't think we've talked about anything else. Well, it's it's just something that, that um, it's Eric Reese talks about in, in his book. There's There's kind of like different ways to compute your met metrics. So when you're talking Bye. about things like this, like sales are up. Sales are up compared to what? Like revenue is up when? So uh, you see a lot of companies, they they only compare like, you know, this quarter versus last quarter or this quarter this year versus this same quarter last year. Right. And it's just sort of like it's either up or down. And, and I guess if you're talking to an investor, maybe they don't really want to know any more than that. But in a startup company, the idea that, like, we signed up 3,000 people this month, it's like, well, great, but what's your regular velocity? Shouldn't you be signing up 3,000 people this month? Exactly. What are you doing to improve that, you know? I think part of the problem is, is, is particularly in American society, 
we have sort of been trained to look at short-term goals more than long-term goals. You know, we have like a 30-second attention span in some cases. So somebody can go, you know, the numbers are up. And we go, yay! You know, but we don't ask the, the critical question compared to what. Well, and, and Apple and McDonald's are very famous for doing this. Over 40 billion served. And you're like, okay, but aren't there like, you know, this many hundred million iPhones out there? And so isn't this just what we expect? Not yeah. anything really spectacular? Yeah, and it's like, 40 billion served over what time frame? The entire history of the company? <laughs> you know, are we talking about the last three years or last three months or, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with, you know, th that's where the, the old, you know, adage, there's statistics, damn statistics, and then lies <laughs> come from, you know? Yeah. People can get very creative with the numbers. You have to be very careful when reading them to really understand what they mean. And most people either don't take the time to really look at them carefully or they don't really understand them. And that's where problems come in because either people interpret them in some manner that that's not really what they represented and then they get very angry or upset or yeah. the people actually intentionally... Uh, misled someone and you know that can get you know nice judges and federal prosecutors showing up on your doorstep or you know whatever the trick is is really being able to be stringent and honest with the data and tell an accurate story yeah. well, that's not always easy it's really <laughs> what Hillary was talking about too about asking the right questions you can exactly. ask good questions that are not the right questions and you could ask really bad questions that make your company look very good right asking the right questions also comes down to you know like having a good goal having a good vision right i i could i could talk about this all day long where if you don't have a very good vision for what what you are trying to achieve then you can make your data say anything you want that sounds cool but exactly. is it what we're trying to do Exactly. You're seeing this more and more in science. Um, at one time, scientists were required to be very unbiased when it came to science. But now you have scientists who their work is basically being paid for by people who have their own agenda about what the outcome should look like. Exactly. So, you know... If somebody's paying you to make the data look a certain way and your livelihood and career rides on making your boss happy, the data is going to be skewed. So I, I have a little bit of a problem with that. <laughs> that science is now being run by the people who and being paid for by people who... Uh, are actually ending up skewing it in their favor. So it makes me wonder where the real science is. It gives science a bad name. Yeah, exactly. Tell us how you really feel, Catherine. I know, I know. So, so uh, are, are, we, are we pretty much wrapped up? Do we want to talk more about the Raspberry Pi? I thought the um, presentation went really, really well. 
uh, I think it's the Raspberry Pis are really very fascinating. I think they're uh, a really interesting innovation, not just for little kids, but for adults. Lance was using it in a lot of ways that were really very interesting. And it's a really powerful little machine. Well, and the point of it, though, is like, it's kind of a minimalist thing, right? It's like, yeah. what is the fewest number of things we could add to a piece of hardware so that we can get the cost of it all the way down, way, way, way down. And their goal was $25, right? Right. And it's so much so that, like, the ports are not really in a very friendly place. Like, there's ports on all four sides of this little board where normally yeah. with a regular, you know, stand-up computer, they're all on one side. Right. And there's not even any screw holes in the thing. There's no way to, like, mount it to something unless you, like, tape it down or, like, rubber cement it down. Or, yeah, or Velcro. Put Velcro on. Velcro. Get on the back of something. But then you get really interesting things, like somebody, like, laser cuts their own custom little box to put it in, right? Yeah, which is what Lance did. (laughs) The guys guys at uh, Famalab, they they did uh, custom boxes for theirs. And the things that he was doing, he was running, like, the latest version. He had the latest version of Doom running on it. He has mounted it to his uh, SLR camera. He was, you know, taking pictures, you know, had it mounted so it was taking all sorts of great pictures as part of his SLR. He was doing this full demo off with it. And then there were these, uh, there was somebody else there that Darren knew, and, and there was some little kids. They were doing stuff with it. It was very impressive. It was very cool. Awesome. Well, and then it sounds like maybe we should try to get Lance on sometime too. Lance yeah. Vick, if, yeah. if anybody doesn't know who we're talking about, he is an Orlando guy. He just sort of like showed up one day and uh, we haven't been able to get rid of him. <laughs> Not that we want to. No, no. And he's the founder of Talk, which is a very interesting startup. And they're, they're really big into analytics too. So yep. uh, it might be interesting to get to, get to talk to him. Well, all right. Um, I do want to remind people uh, how to find information about this podcast and also to go check out the last episode that we did with you, um, which is batsouth.com, B-A-T-T-S-O-U-T-H.com. It's the shortest domain name I could think of <laughs> that <laughs> included bringing art and technology together. And uh, Catherine, how, how do we find out about you? Maybe follow you on the Twitter or something. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. You can find me at Peregrine Neal, P-E-R-E-G-R-I-N-E-N-E-E-L, both places. I'm there. Cool. And I, I promise um, to anybody who's listening that may have sensitive ears that we will make Catherine get a nicer headset Yes, I promise. I'll buy you one. Thanks. You can you can follow me various places if you just search for Ryan Price. Um, although there are lots of people named Ryan Prices, so you can find Ryan Price who goes by Liberator, L I B E R A T R, and uh, you'll see my blonde-faced self somewhere, probably hoisting a beer. Definitely check out, I, I'm also involved with another podcast called the Drupal Easy Podcast, and we talk about content management systems and things that are going on 
in that world. And then last but not least, uh, Florida Creatives. If you are in Florida, please come to one of our meetups. Um, We have them regularly in Orlando and potentially other parts of the state as well. We have groups all over Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, Plus, Twitter, and we have our own website, floridacreatives.com. So please check those things out. And of course, I mean, we've mentioned Urban Rethink a lot, um, but it really is a great place to help us incubate some interesting things, and it's the way that I met Catherine. So, hooray for that. Yep. And happy birthday, Ryan. Yes. It, as we record this, I will be turning 30 two days from now. So there you go. And you will listen to us next time. Something like that. Um, I do really hope to be able to get John Gertner on from the Idea Factory. I think he would be a great person. And given that I actually met him in person and I said, I have this podcast, would you be willing to come on? He sounded somewhat interested. So his, his book is really, really interesting. I'm going to keep it. Yeah, sounds great. You, you would love it. It's all about research and people that come to work with you no know, shoes on and stuff like that. Yeah, my kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Catherine. Well, talk to you next time. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. So we're now here with Catherine Neal, who is the chief scientist at Bitly. That's all come What's that? You, uh, you introduced Catherine, not me. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. Okay, well, that's good. That's good that somebody caught that. I would have just probably... No, I don't know if I would ever figure that out. Thanks. Okay. Wow. Take two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right.